Well, hey, I'm glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in John chapter 1, looking at the first five verses. And, and just so you're aware of, of what I'm already aware of, especially as a parent, is this service, what we always kind of hope for is that this is going to be a little bit more of a family service. But what, what, I, what we never want to skimp on is, is the preaching of the word. So we're going to continue in an Advent series we've been through. But I also know that there's going to be noises that we're not used to, and, and that's okay. I'm, I'm glad that you are here. If your kid is kind of freaking out, there's even space Spaces for you to go to the mom's room and the cry room, and, and, and my kid will probably be along there with you, uh, just kind of freaking out, my wife trying to wrangle him in. So that's okay, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. And so as we jump in, the, the, the thing that I just want to begin with is the, the reality that Christmas tends to bring up a lot of questions for us, doesn't it? I mean, did I get all my Christmas shopping done? Some of you are going to go after church and do that. All these questions kind of come up. Are people going to like what I got them? Am I going to get what I wanted to get? Am I really ready to brave the in-laws? Is the pastor going to teach the same Christmas message yet again? All of these kinds of questions come up, and the main one that really comes up is, is all of this really worth it? All of the planning and all of the time and all of the stuff. And so see, this morning we're continuing our Advent series where we have really been looking at the coming of Christ and his second coming where he will come again. And the question that we've been asking through this over the last couple weeks is in regards to our focus. What is our focus fixed on? And see, there are many things, especially in this season, that can distract us from what matters most. And so often we need, what we need to do is really put some kind of reminder in front of ourselves or really stop, get ourselves to slow down long enough to really think of what that thing is that should be our focus. And so this morning, I hope that this text, I, I hope that this sermon will really help put back into place in your life what matters most. That this is what this text in John chapter 1 is aiming to do. John is writing to people to show them who Jesus is and to really point them to the truth of God's word that they may believe. And in fact, those are his exact words later in chapter 20, verse 31, when he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. But see, John knows, and, and, and I know, that we can't just start with the question, do you believe? We need to understand who Jesus is. And all of us, whatever our belief is, have to answer the question, who is Jesus? All of us have to answer the question at one point or another, who is Jesus? And see, this, I really believe, is the most important question you can ever ask yourself. I mean, especially as we talk this morning about what we call the Christmas story. And see, some of you may be responding, some of you may be thinking, I mean, surely, Pastor, everybody knows who Jesus is, don't they? And see, the answer is no. Not all really know and believe and confess who Jesus is. I mean, they may know a lot about Jesus, but they don't truly know who Jesus is. Do you get that? 
See, the surprising reality is that many don't know and many right here in this community don't really know who he is. And so for us, this is a vital question. Who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus really? See, everyone has differing ideas about who Jesus is. And really how they answer that question varies based on their belief and based on their own experience. And so we could ask a hundred different people and we might even get a hundred different answers to the question. Because see, some would say, well, Jesus is a good teacher or a good prophet. Some would say, Jesus is perfect for when I need something. Kind of that genie in a bottle. And others would say, Jesus is a good guy. He's that figure on my dashboard, that little bobblehead guy. And still there are some that rightly believe that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of their life. And so see, we all tend to agree on the basic part that Jesus was a man that lived on earth. But what we are often divided on is when we insert the confession and the belief that Jesus came in that life to give his life so that we could have life eternal. And still, there is something else that Jesus, about Jesus, that you must know, something foundational to everything I've just mentioned. And it's that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. See, at this Christmas season, many will turn to the gospel of Matthew and to the gospel of Luke to view the Christmas story. And really rightly so, because these two accounts tell us how God became a man. I mean, in Matthew chapter one and two and Luke chapter one and two, we learn about the angel's visit to Mary, the trip by donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the the crowded inn, the manger scene, the shepherd's visit and the angels singing. But see, there's another text that addresses the significance of the day that God became a man. And it's the one we're gonna examine today. Because in John chapter one, It looks at Christmas not so much from a historical vantage point, but from a theological one. And so Matthew and Luke really tell us how God became a man, but John tells us why and what the significance is. And so let me tell you what my motivation this morning is. And I would probably say always in my preaching as a whole is I just want to show you and I want to point you towards Jesus. I want to show you who Jesus is and I want to point you towards him. So that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. If you didn't know that, spoiler alert, we're gonna talk about Jesus. That's what we're gonna do. Because here's what I believe to be true. How you see and understand who Jesus is will directly affect how you then see yourself, how you see the world around you, and it will either point you towards or further away from living fully alive. And so in order for us to focus rightly on Jesus and look to him as our Lord and Savior, we need to understand who he is and what he has done for us. And so this morning, what we're gonna really see and unpack today in our outline is that the word became flesh, that through his authority, we would have light and life. And so if you're taking notes this morning, you're filling in those blanks, those are it for you, that the word became flesh, that through his authority, we would have light and life. And so we're gonna read in John chapter one, starting in verse one. 
<clears throat> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Will you pray with me? Father God, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it speaks. And God, I pray that as we really dig into looking at what your word tells us about who Jesus is, God, I pray that we would begin to see him rightly. So God, again, I I thank you for your word, for what you have sent Jesus to do. And God, this morning, I pray that we're, whatever we're walking in with, wherever we're coming from, God, I pray that genuinely today we would meet Jesus face to face. And so God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So in the first verse of John's gospel letter, he opens by echoing the, the writer of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. He quotes Moses with saying, in the beginning... And then he says, was the word. And in this first verse, John uses the term the word three times. And see, in this, he's speaking of Jesus. And so the word in Greek is logos. And to use this may seem complex and somewhat confusing to us. I mean, why not just say Jesus? In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. But see, John was using a term with various shades of meaning, which was in common use everywhere. This would have been profound to the readers of what they would have already known, but it would have put it in its rightful place of understanding. And so see, the idea of logos had deep and rich roots in both Jewish and Greek thinking. That for the Jewish rabbis, they often referred to God, especially in his more personal aspects, in terms of his word. They spoke of God himself as the word of God. And for example, ancient Hebrew editions of the Old Testament change Exodus chapter 19, verse 17, when it says, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. But in the Hebrew version, it says, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. And so in the mind of the ancient Jews, the phrase, the word of God, could be used to refer to God himself. And then also Greek philosophers, they saw the logos as the power that put sense into the world. This is what made the world orderly instead of chaotic. And the logos was the power that set the world in perfect order and it kept it going in perfect order. And so they saw the logos as the ultimate reason that controlled all things. But to the Greeks, the logos was an abstract force. It was an abstract force. It was not direct. It was not personal. But see, in John's writings, such qualities of the logos are gathered in the person of Christ. So in this opening, John is saying to both the Jews and the Greeks who would hear He's saying, listen, for centuries, you've been, you've been talking and you've been thinking and you've been writing about the word, the logos. And so now John's saying, I'm gonna tell you who he is. And in this, 
what John is doing is he's meeting both Jews and Greeks where they are at. And he's explaining Jesus in terms they already understood. And so John is pointing his readers to the truth that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. See, what John is doing is pointing all to the truth that Jesus is the word. That the word is not abstract and mythical. It is real and personal. And it has become flesh and it has dwelt among us. And so John brings us to this point later in his writing in John chapter one. At the beginning of verse 14, he tells the readers, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And see, to some of John's readers at the time, spirit and the divine were utterly opposed to matter and flesh. I mean, others believed that the gods visited the earth distinguished as human beings. They would take the appearance of. But here, what John is telling us is that a chasm is bridged that the eternal word of God did not merely appear in human form, but actually became flesh. That he took to himself a complete and genuine human nature. And in this, he brought God's presence among us. That the presence of God is perfectly present in Jesus. And see, this is probably one of my favorite parts of John's writing in this verse because it is so powerful. Because see, in verse 14, the word dwelt means pitched his tent. And this not only points to the temporary nature of Jesus's earthly time here, but it also points to a term that recalls ancient Israel's tabernacle, where God resided in the midst of his people. And so see, back in Exodus chapter 33 in the Old Testament, when the people of God were in the wilderness, There was only one place where they could go and meet with him. And it was called the tent of meeting. And so in verse seven of Exodus 33, it says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So look at the significance of what John is telling us here in verse 14. It's that Jesus brought God's present among us. It is no longer in one isolated space. God has brought it in the person of Jesus. That the presence of God is made perfectly present in Jesus. And so see church, what this shows us is that it has always been God reaching out to man, not man reaching out to God. And our reaching back is only a response, a response to his pursuit of us. And so God has chosen in his perfect mercy to pursue and to reconcile sinners through the person and the work of Christ. So see, let me tell you, Christmas is not just about a baby born, but what that baby being born points to. It points to the work that Jesus will do on the cross to save. And so we see this, and as John continues, he continues to show us the mighty work of God through Christ. When he says in verse three, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so here's what this verse tells us. It's that Jesus created everything. 
that Jesus created everything. Genesis chapter one, verse one states that God created the universe, but John chapter one, verse three clarifies that it was done literally through the logos, that the father created, but he did it through the word, that both were at work perfectly in unity. See, this is what Paul goes on to explain to the church in Corinth in Colossians chapter one, verse 15 through 17. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let that sink in. That Jesus created all things. That he brings life, and he has authority over all. So see, what this tells us is that you are not here by random chance of evolutionary process that this universe is the handiwork of a master craftsman, a creator who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me tell you, you can have everything else in this world and still have nothing. You can have everything your your heart desires and you can still have nothing. But if all you have is Christ, then you have everything. See, John is making the point clear that it all points to Jesus, that he alone is the highest authority because he alone is the author of all things. And I love what R.C. Sproul says in regards to this, a man who is a great theologian who passed away just a few weeks ago. And in regards to this detail, he says, the very word authority has within it the word author. And an author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. See, we live in a time where there is a lack of respect for authority. And when it comes right down to it, the reason why I believe that all of that authority is challenged is ultimately because people are not submitted to the authority of their maker. They're not submitted to Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life. And so really, they may, they may know him or know a lot about him, but they do not surrender to his ultimate authority over their life. And so because of this, why would they submit to any other kind of authority? And so not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is someone who submits to the word. But see, John is telling us clearly that without the word was not anything made that was made. And so really, you can have everything else in this world and still have nothing. But if all you have is Christ, then you have everything. And see, regardless of of belief or stance, all other authorities, what we need to understand, are under his authority. So government authorities, that's his. He can use that. He He is in control of that. 
What about the authority found in nature? Yeah, that, that's his too. All of that obeys him. All authority is his. And so what about your authority? Listen, there is no authority to which Jesus Christ does not rule over. Even your precious little authority that you won't give up. Jesus is in authority over that. But see, there is a choice. There is a choice that you can make because you can choose to be under his authority in submission or you can choose to be opposed to it in which you are still under his authority in rebellion. And so see, even the Jewish leaders in Jesus' time really challenged the basis of Jesus' authority. They really highlighted the same issue that confronts all who would consider the claims of Christ, which really is, will we acknowledge that Jesus rightfully has authority over our lives? See, everyone at one point or another wants to be their own authority. Everyone at one point or another wants to be their own authority. But for the Christian, their authority is submitted to Christ. It is willingly given to Christ. And so let me ask you, does Jesus have authority over your life? Does Jesus have authority over your life? See, for the believer under Christ's authority in submission, there is immense confidence and courage and even hope. And, and let me tell you, it's not because of themselves that by having Christ, they become this awesome person. But by having Christ, we have the most awesome thing available because he does not stand far off. He does not leave creation to solve its greatest need. It's that he stepped down in human form. He took on flesh and he did what you and I needed done but could not do. He took on shame, he took on sin, and he took our cross. And so see, for the believer, this is their confidence and their courage and their hope that he is not only their ultimate authority, he is also their light that has brought life. And see, so far in the first three verses, John has been explaining who Jesus is. He's been speaking of his character and his authority. But see, now in verse four and five, John tells us about the redemptive work that Jesus will come and do. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, looking at verse four, in Greek, there are a couple ways to talk about life. When we read, in him was life, for us in English, we only have one way of talking about life. And so I could ask you two very different questions, or, or the same question with two very different meanings. But really, it all points back for us in English to the same word. So I could come to you panicking, asking, are you alive? Or I could also come to you asking, hey, how's life? but it's the same word. See, in Greek, they have two different words here expressed with different meanings. And so one of the words for life that was used in the Greek was bios. And this meant physical life. It meant material life. And the second word for life was zoe, meaning a life that goes beyond the physical. It was an eternal life. 
And so in verse four, John is telling us that in the word is eternal life. In the word is Zoe. And so this is in no one else. There is nothing else that holds this kind of life. It is Christ alone. And so what I know to be true of all of us is that we've had this emptiness inside. That all of us before Christ, our hearts were void and vacant and filled with darkness. And see, what we've tried to do in that, or some of you are doing right now, is you are trying to fill that emptiness and that void with life. But it's all bios, life. So if you find your life in things that perish, you will never be filled. And so let me tell you, that high is going to wear off. That pleasure is passing quickly. Those compliments that you long for are going to fade. And that person or that place or that thing is going to fail you because they do not hold within themselves the life that you need. And so all of us are searching for something. And I would say during the holidays, especially, that really tends to be heightened. That we are searching for and we are longing for something that will fill that void and will be sustainable beyond how we feel right now. But see, none of, the, none of those things will fill you because you need a Zoe solution for a Zoe need. And where does this Zoe life come from? John says it's the word. It's the word. It's Jesus Christ. And so let me tell you what is true, both in our text and in all of scripture. It's that if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then that void has been filled and there is no longer a longing inside of you for a search without resolve. Because John is telling us, Christ alone is your resolve. That Jesus has not only stepped into the mess of our space, but he also was the light that shines in the darkness of it. And so this morning is not just a reflection and a celebration on the birth of our Savior, but that his birth points us to the cross where he suffered for us, where he took on all of my sin and he took on all of yours so that your life would no longer be marked as sinner, but as child of God. That we might believe in him so that we would no longer be in darkness, that we would no longer be separated from God, that we would no longer be filled with sin, we would no longer be without life, but that through faith in Christ alone, we would receive the life and light that is Jesus Christ. And see, here's what's incredible about Jesus that John tells us. He is the light that the darkness has not overcome. Another way in the interpretation of scripture is the darkness can't even comprehend it. And so as we go to to really light our candles and and for the kids to break their, their glow sticks, I want you to think on on what those things really reflect. That these symbols are an opportunity for us to really reflect on what our Savior has done for us. 
But think for a moment that, that you have a candle, but it does not have light. You have a candle with you, but it does not have light. See, Jesus came so that a gift could be given, that an invitation could be extended. And in this, Christ has met the deepest need of mankind. He has met the deepest need of mankind. And so have you trusted in him as your savior? See, we, this morning, we have an opportunity to respond. And not with a check mark or, or a mantra or a raising of a hand, but with a genuine confession. Because what the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, is that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here's what that verse tells us. Look to Jesus. He is the light that brings life. And I promise you this, if you walk out without him, there's no other life that is going to fill your life and satisfy you. He is the light that brings life. He is the light that invades the darkness. He is the life that saves you from no life. And so as we come to a close this morning, I wanna ask you all to consider this question as we close in prayer and we go to lighting these candles and really reflecting on our Savior. I wanna encourage you to ask a question that we've been asking through this whole series and as we conclude it next week that we'll be asking again. What am I focused on this season? What am I focused on this season? See, this question brings up all, all these other questions. As I began with saying, this season tends to bring up a lot of questions. Are you looking to Jesus in this season and in every other season? Or is there something else that is taking your focus, that's taking your affection, that even in that has become the object of your worship? I promise you this, nothing else will bring life but Christ alone. And so remember, you have a candle, but it does not have light. And as we go to light these, what we're gonna do is I'm gonna light this one and then it's gonna be extended to you and, and you'll light yours. And remember that, that a light has been given that you may believe and have life. And so let's pray together and then do this as a reflection of remembering the light that shines in the darkness.